Welcome. You are listening to Aftersight. This recording is intended solely for individuals who are blind or have low vision. Thank you for joining us for the Thursday, February 15, 2024 reading of the Boulder Weekly. My name is Eric Levine. News under one roof. Everything we know and don't know about Boulder's new day center by Kaylee Harder, February 14, 2024. Crystal and G, a married couple, both wearing tan Carhartt overalls, sit on a bench at the Boulder Bandshell on a sunny Thursday afternoon. They've been homeless for just under a year. Their sleeping bags and backpacks sit next to them. Crystal says they were turned away from the shelter just last night, a regular occurrence. She describes accessing services as, quote, a hamster wheel, unquote, a constant struggle of figuring out where to be and when and figuring out a way to get there. Quote, you don't know what you're looking for? You're screwed. That's where I've been, just going in circles, chasing my tail, Crystal says. I don't know the questions to ask everybody, and everybody's so busy, unquote. She describes the slog of getting to the right place at the right time, quote, back and forth, back and forth. That's a pain in the rear end, and it hurts. You're gone for a couple of hours, but it feels like you just went to work and did manual labor, unquote. That could be changing soon as plans to bring a range of services under one roof at Boulder Shelter for the Homeless, BSH, progress. City Council made a day center a priority at their 2022 retreat. Previous plans for the center on Folsom fell through after the developer withdrew from the project in July 2023. And in December 2023, the city and BSH announced plans for the day center in the existing shelter facility. Quote, the best practice in this work is to co-locate services so people don't have to bounce all around the city to access services, but rather have a one-stop shop where they can access several services in one place, unquote, says Megan Newton the city's homelessness policy advisor. Crystal says she found out about the day services center by mistake. She was searching for services when she came across an article in which housed neighbors lamented potential property loss values. Crystal and G see the co-location of services as largely positive. Quote, I personally don't care to be out in the streets by myself, not knowing where I'm going, Crystal says. We can't both get a job because you can't keep your stuff in the locker with how big they are. I don't know how to fit this with my other stuff. So are we supposed to just throw it all away and say, okay, I'll just wear the same underwear for the next two weeks, unquote. G sits behind Crystal with his arms wrapped around her. They say they keep each other going. Quote, as long as it's the shelter itself, then I can go to work and I ain't got to worry about her having to pack all our stuff up every day and walk these streets and tote our stuff, G says. 
I mean, yeah, that would be a good thing, unquote. For the city and shelter, the day center is a piece of the puzzle in addressing Boulder's growing homelessness crisis. Quote, the ultimate goal is to get engaged folks into services in an effort to exit them from homelessness altogether, says Newton. This is just another piece of a full continuum to be able to do that, unquote. It's a work in progress, and city staff approval is still required for the center to move ahead, but here's what we know and what we don't about the day center so far. What we know. The center will provide a dedicated space for the unhoused to go during the day, something that hasn't existed other than during critical weather in the city since 2017. The hope is that we'll engage a new population of people who, for a variety of reasons, don't come to the congregate nighttime shelter. Quote, the big plus for us is that we have a place and an attraction for those people so that we can get them to connect to services that already exist, unquote, says Andy Schultheis, a spokesperson for the shelter. Quote, whether that's mental health or substance abuse, or job searching, or connecting with lost relatives, and all of those things that we do normally, we can only do that for people who show up for our nighttime services." Unquote. Reaching those new people isn't without its hurdles. Quote, Dealing with a whole new population that isn't used to the rules that we have in the shelter, that's going to be a bit of a challenge, and we're going to have to work through that working with the police department and others, and figure out what those rules are going to be, Schultheis says. All those things are overcomable, and they're just going to take a while, unquote. Funding for the day center is coming from several different sources. The city's general fund will contribute $2.6 million for the next five years, to pay for ongoing day service center expenses, as well as housing and capital supports. After that, the city will pay $1.6 million annually, according to Lindsay Morse Casillas, a spokesperson for the city. Of the city's general fund contributions, $108,000 will go toward 30 housing vouchers that the state is helping to fund. City funding is also being supplemented with a one-year state grant of more than $1.2 million for expanded services in 2024, which includes additional case management services, a second retention team, peer support, and mental and behavioral health services. A $2 million two-year grant from the state's Department of Local Affairs, along with, quote, some general fund, unquote, money, will cover a new respite program, according to Morse Casillas. Staff also, quote, expect to request funding during the mid-year process to support renovations and startup costs for both respite and day services, unquote, according to Morse Casillas. Some neighbors aren't happy. In a nearly two-hour-long good neighbor meeting, a required part of updating the management plan, 
Most of the more than 20 neighbors that spoke expressed concerns about the shelter adding day services. Quote, Had I known this was going to happen, I would have highly reconsidered buying, considering the price that it cost to live in this neighborhood, unquote, said Dakota Ridge resident Emily Metza at the meeting. Quote, Safety is a huge issue. Loitering is ha happening beyond your property as people leave the property, unquote. Schultheis believes having a day center will likely reduce lo loitering. Quote, Right now, we have a situation where people are kicked out and they typically hang around for a while before getting on a bus or walking downtown or whatever they have to do that day, he says. And then the same thing happens in the evening. There's a line around the block of people waiting to get into the shelter. If we're open 24-7, those people are going to be inside. And yes, it's true that people are going to come and go a little bit during the day, but I think that it will be balanced by people who aren't just waiting around at the beginning and end of the day with no place to go, unquote. The management plan allows for people to come and go during the day, a deviation from how the night shelter operates, with no coming and going allowed. Crystal echoes Schultheis's sentiment, quote, they don't want us around and sleeping here and there, she says. Well, then, give, the, give those who want it the opportunity to change all that. You know, help us help you help us, unquote. Transportation to the shelter will double. Currently, free transportation to the shelter consists of one hop bus from the shelter in the morning and one to the shelter in the evening. The shelter is at the terminus of the skip and hop lines, and Newton says in addition to doubling the free buses to the shelter, the city also plans to provide bus passes. Quote, Although there will be free buses running, folks don't have to wait necessarily for that bus, but rather would have access to bus passes both at the day center and from outreach teams, unquote, Newton says. The day center comes with increased capacity at the night shelter year-round. The shelter's 160 beds will be increased to 180 beds every night. Previously, those extra 20 beds were only available during critical weather events. Moving forward, no additional beds will be added for critical weather. The shelter needs to hire more people. Schulteis says a big part of the shelter's focus right now is hiring more staff and figuring out shifts to meet the increased hours. Currently, the shelter employs 70 people, 50 of whom are client-facing at the shelter or other permanent housing sites. Ideally, the shelter will hire between 5 and 10 new employees, Schulteis says. Quote, our client-facing staff are amazing, and they don't get paid all that well. It's tough work, he says. We're constantly hiring people for the night shifts, and now we've got to do the same for the day shifts. So that is a big, big lift for us, unquote. What we sort of know. When the shelter will open. The goal is for the shelter to open by the end of winter, but Spencer Downing, chief housing officer at BSH, says spring is a safer estimate. The services that will be offered 
but not when they'll be offered. The full list of proposed services includes respite care for those transitioning from the hospital, community court, and treatment for substance abuse, but not all those services will necessarily be available from the outset. Coordinated entry and diversion programs, such as those that help people reconnect with family members, will be available right away, Schulteis says. Quote, it's amazing how many people would go live with their cousin in Kentucky or wherever they're from if they had fare to get there and a nice set of clothes and all that. So we do that, unquote, he says. Services to help get folks who qualify into permanent housing will also start on day one, according to Schultheis. Showers, laundry, and lockers, all of which the shelter already has, will also most likely be available from the start. Lunch is an evolving discussion, but Schultheis says it will probably be available shortly after the opening of the Day Services Center. Quote, we're going from 110,000 meals a year to 160,000 meals a year, which is an enormous thing. And food storage is a huge headache, Schulteis says. We don't have that much room here, unquote. <clears throat> Crystal says she thinks having lunches available will be an important factor in whether the center is utilized. Quote, I hope that it's doing breakfast and lunch so that we're fed, she says because otherwise the day center is going to be more or less not really utilized as much without the food there, because then we have to go out and look for food, unquote. Bringing in outside partners, such as mental health and substance abuse service providers, is currently the biggest question mark and will happen, quote, more slowly, unquote, Schulteis says. The plan is for the entire management staff of the shelter to move their offices out of the shelter to make room for service providers. Quote, it's going to happen at some point, but perhaps not on day one, unquote, he says. Putting the day center in the existing shelter saves time and money. Having the day center in a separate location would have likely required additional costs to buy or lease space. Schulteis says because of those savings and additional funding that comes with the day center, BSH will be able to nearly double the number of people in permanent housing over the next year. Quote, past that, we expect there will be savings, Newton says, but until we do it, we're not quite sure where that lies, unquote. Since a new building or renovations to an existing building are no longer needed, the city also expects the center to open 6 to 12 months earlier than if it was in a new location, Morse Casillas says. What we don't know, what intake at the shelter will look like. Currently, those hoping to stay at the shelter must arrive between 5 and 7 p.m., and have completed the coordinated entry process ahead of time. On nights when the shelter is at capacity, a lottery system is used to decide who gets a bed. With the shelter's new hours and services, that protocol will likely change. 
Schulteis says those plans are in development, but likely won't be nailed down until the final permit is submitted to the city. Whether the shelter will update the management plan before resubmitting to the city. Some speakers at the Good Neighbor meeting said they felt that NOBO bears the brunt of a disproportionate amount of homelessness services. Others said they felt the process was rushed and like the meeting was, quote, just checking a box, unquote, rather than meaningfully engaging. It's true that the Good Neighbor meeting doesn't actually require any additional action on the part of the shelter or the city. Updating the management plan requires a staff-level review, and it's unlikely it won't be approved since the center already has support from the city. Still, Schulteis says it's possible there will be another update to the management plan based on neighbors' feedback. How the new services at the day center will be received by homeless folks. Consolidating services is good, it makes them more accessible and easier to navigate. But until the center is up and running, it's hard to say how many people will access the services a day and how many of those people will be new to the services. Quote, different day centers have had different experiences in terms of how many people come in. We don't really know, Schulteis says. There will be people here, but I very much doubt there will be 180 people unless there's a blizzard going on. We'd be very, very pleased if we could serve 30 or 40 people a day and get them into meetings with service providers." Unquote. For some, the fact that the day center is in the same location as the night shelter could be a turnoff. Quote, I think everyone in this process hopes that we will be able to create opportunities for people who often had been reluctant to go to the shelter or have had difficulty with the shelter, or finding the shelter and appealing to them, says Downing. One of the things that we were looking forward to in creating a separate space was the opportunity to have a place that didn't have those associations." Unquote. Brittany Ann, who's been homeless for a little over four years, says she's stayed at the shelter before, but is unlikely to go back even for day services, except in critical weather. Quote, I feel like the shelter is too many people in one place, she says. All we have in common is that we don't have anywhere to be. So you end up with all of this cultural turmoil and stress, and it's a really poor environment, unquote. Figuring out how to reach people like Brittany Ann, who are wary of the shelter, is one of the biggest questions staff are working to answer, Downing says. Quote, How do we make this resource attractive and, above all, useful to people experience homelessness so that we can be a piece of solving whatever they need that gets them into housing, he says. Like, how many do we make it useful? How do we make it useful to that person who was annoyed with bureaucracy? How do we make it useful to that person who is suspicious of the helper industry? I say that as somebody who is part of the helper industry, and how can we be useful to those people?" Unquote. What's next? After the shelter resubmits the management plan, it will be reviewed on a two-week track, and staff could require a third round of review, according to Morse Casillas. 
All in all, a city shelter staff acknowledged they don't have all the answers yet and likely won't until the center is operational. Quote, when Disney World was created, Walt Disney decided not to pave the sidewalks. Instead, he waited a couple of years to see where the visitors were going to walk, and then he paved those, unquote, Schulte says. Quote, so that's kind of what we're going to do. We're going to see how this thing goes, and we're going to stay in close touch with the neighborhood, and we're going to figure out what's the best way to do it, and then we're going to pave those paths, unquote. For Crystal, input from those with lived experience will be crucial. Quote, they want to know where to start to fix it. They need to start asking people who are homeless and listening to what they have to say. Unquote. Editor's note, the homeless individuals featured in this story asked to be identified by their first names only. News, Boko. Briefly, February 14, 2024, Local News at a Glance, by Will Matuska. Downtown Boulder Station Lobby to Reopen RTD's Downtown Boulder Station Lobby is slated to reopen Monday, February 19, after methamphetamine residue was found in the restrooms and in the station's ductwork in January 2023. Over the last year, the original ductwork was removed and replaced with a system that can be cleaned, according to an RTD press release. The district also installed more powerful exhaust fans in the public restroom. Now, smoke will be contained to the bathroom if drug use happens there again. The state's cleanup standard for meth detected in habitable spaces is 0.5 micrograms per 100 square centimeters. The closure of the station's lobby happened after Boulder's downtown public library was closed on December 20, 2022, following similar meth contamination in its public restrooms and common areas. The library reopened in early January, and the bathrooms followed in mid-April. Meth contamination in public spaces isn't unique to Boulder. Other libraries across the Denver metro closed from the same cause in early 2023. Meth use, along with the number of meth-involved overdoses, has increased nationally. CU drafts new climate goals. CU Boulder published the draft of its updated Climate Action Plan, CAP, on February 5. The plan aims to, quote, advance just and equitable climate solutions that address mitigation, adaptation, and resilience, unquote, through five core goals, including reaching 50% reduction of certain emissions by 2030 and to be on track to reach zero emissions by 2050 using baseline emissions from 2019. Between now and 2030, the plan outlines how more than 80% of carbon savings will come from increased building efficiency through projects like lighting, retrofits, and HVAC system upgrades. Other strategies include renewable energy, fleet replacement, and heating system upgrades. 
The university did not reach the phase one goal of its first climate action plan, approved on October 8, 2009, to reach 20% greenhouse gas reduction by 2020. Quote, the CAP is a critical document that maps out our strategy for achieving carbon neutrality, and the voices of our campus community are vital to ensuring the CAP is as good as it can be, unquote. Chris Ewing, a member of the CAP Steering Committee, said in a press release. The final plan is expected to be published in April. The CAP Steering Committee is seeking public comment on the draft through March 5, Upcoming engagement sessions include February 13, 23, and 28, all on Zoom. Visit colorado.edu slash sustainability slash programs slash climate dash action dash plan. Sub submit feedback on the plan at cuboulder.com. Qualtrics, that's Q-U-A-L-T-R-I-C-S dot com. In other news, Boulder County Sheriff's Office released a new tool to show open burn locations in unincorporated Boulder County on February 5. The, quote, open burning portal, unquote, at bouldercounty.gov slash safety slash fire slash burn dash permits. The portal includes a map displaying permitted and registered open slash or agricultural burns and a new notification hotline. Along with increasing community awareness and safety, the system is supposed to reduce burn-related calls to 911 county dispatchers. The city of Boulder will install two more red light cameras and another automated speed enforcement by April 1 as part of an effort to, cu to curb severe crashes. Visit bouldercolorado.gov slash projects slash vision dash zero, Z-E-R-O, dash action dash plan. One of the red light cameras will be installed at Canyon and 15th and the other at 28th and J Road. The speed enforcement will be at Broadway and Pine, where there is already a red light camera. According to the city, speeding and running red lights are two of the most common causes of severe crashes in town. 19 Colorado conservation and environmental organizations, including Boulder County Audubon, signed a letter asking elected officials to pause, quote, wildfire fuel reduction, quote, logging as, quote, a large and growing body of peer-reviewed science questions the reasoning for and effectiveness, unquote, of those projects. This comes as some land managers are utilizing techniques that focus on community readiness, like home hardening, to balance with traditional forest thinning to prepare for wildfire. News, Government Watch, February 14, 2024. What Your Local Elected Officials Are Up To This Week by Boulder Weekly Staff. 
Government offices are closed Monday, February 19, in observance of President's Day. Boulder City Council. On February 22, Council will hold a three-hour joint meeting with the Open Space Board of Trustees, OSBT, beginning at 6 p.m. There's one item on the agenda, the disposal of 2.2 acres of Van Vliet open space. The land is needed to build flood mitigation along South Boulder Creek, commonly known as the CU South Project, to protect 2,300 residents and 1,100 homes. Because Van Vliet was purchased as open space, using open space funds, it can legally not be used for other purposes. OSBT will have to vote to formally dispose of the land, that is, officially give it to the Utilities Department to use for flood protection. Residents could also force the matter to a public vote with a citizen petition, petition filed within 60 days of the vote. The land is needed to build a flood wall along US 36, according to city utility staff. Another 1.9 acres will be impacted temporarily during construction. Another agreement will govern access and impacts. There will not be a meeting of Boulder City Council on February 29. Meetings resume March 7. Watch Boulder City Council meetings on YouTube at youtube.com slash at sign city of Boulder Gov GOV or on channel eight. Boulder County Commissioners. Reminder Commissioners will be interviewing candidates for Boulder County Coroner at two PM on Thursday, february fifteen. Attend virtually at boco.org slash coroner dash interviews dash Two, number two. On February 21, Commissioner Claire Levy will attend the Denver Regional Council of Governments, DRCOG or Dr. Cog, meeting at 6.30 p.m. The organization includes representatives from 58 participating governments and addresses issues of transportation, growth, and development and aging and disability resources. On February 22, commissioners will attend the counties and commissioners acting together CCAT meeting at 5.30 p.m. For more information, visit coloradocCAT.org. CCAT is a group that represents county interests at the state capitol. Lafayette City Council. On February 6, the council approved a contract to inventory all city water lines and come up with a plan to replace any and all lead, lead pipes. The contract will also identify possible funding strategies. They also approved a contract for pre-design and siting of a second water treatment plant. The facility will provide additional water treatment capacity and allow for maintenance and upgrades at the baseline water treatment plant. On February 16 and 17, Council will hold a retreat to discuss the group's goals for the next two years. On February 20, Council will hear a presentation from the Regional Housing Partnership 
a cross-jurisdictional group working toward increasing affordable housing in Boulder County. The partnership has a goal of preserving or building 12% of the county's housing as affordable by 2035. Watch Lafayette City Councils on YouTube at youtube.com slash cityoflafayetteco or on Channel 8. Find a calendar of meetings at bit.ly slash lafayette-council. Want to learn more about Lafayette City Council? Karen Norback, our new Lafayette correspondent, write, writes reports from a political hobbyist on Substack. Sign up at bit.ly slash lafayette-news. Cuisine, Nibbles, Boulder's Tea Spirit. Boulder Tea Hut elevates the sipping experience. By John Lendorf, February 13, 2024. Reverend Boo Nan Brown, co-founder of Boulder Tea Hut, likes a mug of Earl Grey now and then. Quote, that's what we call tea with a small T rather than tea with a big T, unquote, he says. Boulder Tea Hut, co-founded by Brown and Stefan Vandermersch, offers Zen Buddhist tea ceremonies and education at spaces near Chautauqua Park and up Sunshine Canyon. The capital T teas Brown steeps for attendees are far removed from the powdered leaves found in supermarket tea bags and even the exotic teas brewed properly in pots at Boulder's cafes. Quote, the teas we use come from wild trees, not plantation bushes treated with fertilizers and pesticides, and harvested and processed in ways that are very damaging to the leaves, unquote, Vandermersch says. Quote, these tea trees are up to 200 feet tall, with leaves bigger than your hand, unquote. Some of the teas Boulder Tea Hut uses come from trees in Taiwan that are more than 1,000 years old. Some teas were harvested in the 1940s and every decade onwards. Like Bordeaux wines, these vintage teas exhibit terroir. They taste the way they do because of where the tree grows. Quote, we have more than 200 teas stored here. It is certainly among the largest collections of aged and antique oolong teas in the United States, Vandermersch says. The best teas in the world are already all spoken for. The only way we get access is through our teacher." Unquote. The project was inspired by the centuries-old contemplative Zen Buddhist tradition taught by the Taiwan-based monk Wu Dei. Boulder Tea Hut began quietly in 2016, when Brown began crafting a traditional 120-square-foot tea house in Sunshine Canyon, located near a natural spring. The opening of Sunshine Springs Tea House was delayed by the pandemic. The mountain tea house is small, remote, and only used for private ceremonies. Quote, Our teacher asked us to open a space in Boulder more accessible to the public, Vandermersch says. 
we remodeled the carriage house next to my home and opened in 2023. Unquote. The nonprofit Boulder Tea Hut is not like most tea houses. Quote, you can't come in off the street and we have tea ready for you, Boonan Brown says. You sign up for anywhere from an hour to a three-hour tea ceremony. We're going to sit down and have this experience together, unquote. Quote, there's a way in which we're more of a church than we are a store or cafe, unquote, Vandermersch adds. Every detail matters. Tea ceremonies at Boulder Tea Hut focus on critical details in making and serving the beverage. Beyond the leaves themselves, it starts with water. Quote, tea is 99% water, Brown says. If you want to improve the quality of your tea, improve the quality of your water. The best water you can get for tea is fresh mountain spring water, unquote. Classes at the Boulder Hut often involve tasting tap water, spring water, distilled, and reverse osmosis water that has been stored in ceramic, glass, and plastic containers, and then the teas made with them. Quote, if you try them side by side, the teas are completely different, Vandermersch says. I was completely blown away, unquote. When heating the water, traditional hardwood charcoal is preferred, but is unsafe indoors. Other radiant heat sources are acceptable. Microwaving and using induction stoves are not. Quote, if we have to use a microwave to make tea, Brown says, we just don't have tea, unquote. The vessel you boil in matters too. Stainless steel is okay, as is glass, but aluminum pans should never be used. In tea ceremonies, the tea is always sipped from handmade ceramic bowls. Quote, I've been practicing for eight years, and I still find brewing oolong teas to be incredibly challenging, unquote, Vandermersch says. Boulder has been tea town since some of the first white settlers arrived. Herbal teas were prescribed at Boulder's sanitarium starting in 1896. Today in Boulder, you can go out for a cup at Koo Cha House of Tea or Old Barrel Tea Company, sip Korean tea at A Cup of Tea, sample herb tea on the Celestial Seasonings Tea Factory Tour, and afternoon Earl Grey at the new Alice and Rose Tea House on the Hill. You can have afternoon tea at Boulder's Dushanbe, a traditional Tajik tea house. More than four varieties of popular spiced ta ta chai are made here, and a Chinese tea cafe, Day Day Up, recently opened in Lafayette. Those locations don't include many other cafes offering boba tea, mushroom infusions, green tea lattes, and kava. Despite this crowded market and no marketing efforts, more than 800 people have already participated in tea ceremonies at Boulder Tea Hut. Quote, Our teacher has traveled around the world and taught in all sorts of different places, Brown says. After we brought him here a number of times, he said that Boulder has the best tea spirit that he's ever seen. Unquote. Road food. Omakase Bliss in Littleton. Working in Littleton one recent afternoon, hunger had me googling sushi near me. 
Low expectations led instead to serious Japanese fare at Makizuchiko, tucked away inconspicuously in a strip mall at 5950 South Platte Canyon Road. This pleasant place specializes in omakase, a chef-chosen multi-course tasting meal of the best seafood in the place. The coolest taste is sashimi served under a glass bell filled with cherrywood smoke. Locals love this place, so reservations are highly recommended. Local food news. Just B Kitchen opens. Just B Kitchen is open at 2500 30th Street, number 101 in Boulder. The Colorado-born eatery dishes fare that is free of gluten, refined sugars, soy, corn, peanuts, and seed oils, and is 99% free of grains, dairy, and legumes. John's Table Kitchen and Bar, formerly Red Garden Restaurant, is open at 1700 Dogwood Street in Louisville. Menu includes pan-seared salmon with polenta and broccolini. Lafayette's Tandoori Kitchen ranks number 41 on Yelp's new list of the top 100 U.S. restaurants. Coming soon, Busaba Thai Restaurant at 2343 Clover Basin Drive in Longmont. Tickets for six summer dinners at Lafayette's Three Leaf Farm are on sale at threeleaffarm.com slash farm dash dinners. Words to chew on, peeling away joy. Quote, you can see everything in the universe in one tangerine. When you peel it and smell it, it's wonderful. You can take your time eating a tangerine and be very happy. Unquote. From Thich Nhat Hanh. John Lendorf hosts Radio Nibbles and Kitchen Talk Kitchen Table Talk on KGNU. Send comments to nibbles at boulderweekly.com. Entertainment, books, a meanness in this world. Denver author sheds new light on killing spree that terrorized the heartland by Bart Shaneman, February 14, 2024. Before the American news cycle was dominated by mass shootings at schools, grocery stores, and other public places, there was one killer who tore a hole in the fabric of Midwestern culture, Charles Starkweather. In 1958, 19-year-old Starkweather murdered the parents and sister of his 14-year-old girlfriend, Carol Fugate, at their home in Lincoln, Nebraska. Starkweather took Fugate with him on a killing spree ending in Wyoming, that would leave 10 dead, shocking the nation and gripping the heartland in terror. Starkweather was convicted and executed at the Nebraska State Penitentiary in 1959, and Fugate was sentenced to life in prison the year prior. The story captivated the consciousness of the U.S. during a relatively prosperous and seemingly placid time in the country later serving as inspiration for Oliver Stone's film Natural Born Killers and Bruce Springsteen's somber masterpiece Nebraska, among other works of art. 
Denver true crime author Harry McLean, who grew up in Lincoln and was a teenager at the time of the murders, felt the Starkweather saga was fading from the country's collective memory. He also thought there was more to be said about the guilt or innocence of Fugate, who was paroled for good behavior nearly two decades after her initial life sentence. So he set up a two-year project that would become Starkweather, the untold story of the killing spree that changed America, published in November by Counterpoint Press. McLean drew on his skills as an attorney, poring over court materials in his quest to better understand the tragic story. He had toyed with writing the book many times before, but didn't commit until he read about Fugate's denied request for a pardon in 2020, decades after her parole in 1976. In video clips from the hearing, Fugate broke down crying, insisting she wasn't in the house when her parents were killed. Quote, that was the hook, McLean says. Either she was telling the truth or she was a great actress, unquote. The lawyer side of McLean kicked in, and he started looking for evidence that Fugate was also a killer. Quote, that pulled me into the story, her guilt or innocence, unquote. More to the story. There was another reason McLean wanted to explore this story. He saw it as overly romanticized, often cast in the same light as the Bonnie and Clyde mythology, or portrayed as a dramatic love story in the case of Terrence Malick's Badlands. Quote, that I knew wasn't true, McLean says. There's a whole reality behind it. I wanted to sink deeper into that, unquote. Part of that reality involves whether Fugate was an accomplice to the killings. She has maintained her innocence, despite Starkweather's insistence until his execution that she was in on some of the murders. By laying out the facts for the reader to interpret, McLean argues that Fugate was, quote, under duress, unquote, during the spree in a state of PTSD and dissociation, partly due to her age, quote, the trauma pretty much disabled her from making a decision to run and escape, unquote, he says. The way McLean tells it, Starkweather had told Fugate that her parents were still alive and being held captive by his gang, and she believed him at first. As it dawned on her that they were likely dead, the dire reality of her situation set in. Others have long argued that Fugate had multiple opportunities to get away from Starkweather before they were finally caught in Wyoming. But McLean believes she was too terrified of a man on a murderous rampage, killing people at random in an attempt to become more in death than he ever would in life. Quote, that randomness of what he was doing marked him as really the first sociopath who went out and without a particular vengeance or sense of revenge, just started killing people, unquote. McLean says, quote, that's what he wanted to do and he did it. He got famous, which was also what he wanted, unquote. What would it take? This leads to another key element of the story. Starkweather's killing spree took place in the early days of mass media, when most families had a television in their home. According to McLean, Starkweather had a sense that he would end up on national TV, which he did, 
all the way through the trial coverage and convictions. Quote, it was right into the living room, McLean says, which is a lot more powerful than reading a newspaper, unquote. Untangling the story surrounding this brutal chapter of American history is a continuation of McLean's knack as a true crime writer for tapping into what he calls, quote, people's fascination with the dark side of the human personality, unquote. Although McLean certainly doesn't characterize Starkweather as normal, he says readers are interested in what causes seemingly everyday people to do terrible things. Quote, how thin is the veneer of civilization and how easily would some of our values and norms dissipate if challenged, he asks. There's a neighbor or a guy in the next town over who looks just like them who killed someone. That raises a question. What would it take? Unquote. On the page, Starkweather, the untold story of the killing spree that changed America, is out now in hardcover via Counterpoint Press. Entertainment. Events. February 15 through 22, 2024. Where to go and what to do in Boulder County. By Boulder Weekly Staff. Shine. A love letter to the trans community. 7 to 9 p.m. Thursday, February 15, East Window, 4550 Broadway, Suite C3B2 in Boulder. Free. This collaboration between East Window and Out Boulder County hangs on a simple but powerful question. What is trans joy? Curated by local writer and activist Charlotte Piper, the celebratory evening features spoken word, poetry, and short stories by trans youth. For more in information, visit boulderweekly.com slash entertainment slash events dash feb dash 15 dash 22 dash 2024. Proclaiming Colorado's Black History Guided Tour, noon to 1 p.m., Saturday, February 17, at the Museum of Boulder, 2205 Broadway, $20. Join NAACP Boulder County Branch President Annette James for a guided tour of Proclaiming Colorado's Black History. Running at the Museum of Boulder through September 25, this cultural history exhibition offers a kaleidoscopic view of local African-American history from pre-statehood to the present. Real Rock 18, 7 to 8 p.m. Friday, February 16, and Saturday, February 17, at Mackey Auditorium, 1595 Pleasant Street in Boulder, $28. Get a grip with four thrilling new climbing films from around the world, from Japan's mythical Mount Mizugaki to a treacherous free ascent of Jirishanka in the Peruvian Andes. If it's adrenaline you're after, you'll find it during this hometown, hometown world premiere of Real Rock 18 on the CU Boulder campus. Boulder Symphony at the Dairy Arts Center. 7.30 to 9.30 p.m. Friday, February 16, and Saturday, February 17, at the Dairy Arts Center, 2590 Walnut Street, $30, 
Boulder Symphony presents, quote, a journey from darkness to light, unquote, during a special performance of Tchaikovsky's Symphony No. 5 at the Dairy Arts Center. The evening will also celebrate Jialin Yao, the winner of the 2023 International Keyboard Odyssead and Festival Competition, who will perform Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 3. Mardi Gras at the Dickens Opera House, 3 to 11 p.m., Saturday, February 17, at the Dickens Opera House, 300 Main Street in Longmont, 20 to $35. Celebrate Mardi Gras in style at the historic Dickens Opera House in Longmont. Festivities at this Bourbon Street style bash include live DJs, Creole and Cajun cuisine, drink specials, and more. Climatique Fest, 5.30 to 8.30 p.m., Saturday, February 17, Trident Booksellers and Cafe, 940 Pearl Street in Boulder, free. Collective liberation is on the menu during this climate justice bash where you can, quote, meet comrades, make art, and boogie, unquote. The evening kicks off with an open mic, followed by live music from Sneaky Bandit and the Scavengers, Beaupre, and a special guest to be announced. Love is in the Air, Aerial Cabaret, 8 to 9 p.m., Saturday, February 17. Frequent Flyers Aerial Dance, 3022 East Sterling Circle, Unit 150 in Boulder, $30. Grab your special someone and join Frequent Flyers Aerial Dance performers during this high-flying love fest on V-Day weekend. This all-ages showcase features performances by Tel Razomans, Valerie Morris, and Michelle Randolph, Whitney Moore, and more. NAACP Boulder County Freedom Fund Celebration, 3 p.m. Sunday, February 18 at Mackey Auditorium, 1595 Pleasant Street in Boulder, free. Support Boulder County NAACP during this free event, quote, where justice and music unite, unquote. The afternoon features guest speaker Anthony Ray Hinton, who spent nearly 30 years on Alabama's death row for a crime he did not commit, plus the rich R&B sounds of performer Danielle Ponder. Follow the Stars, Lakota Journey Through the Black Hills, 6 to 8 p.m., Wednesday, February 21, Fisk Planetarium, 2414 Regent Drive in Boulder, free. Experience the Black Hills before colonization through the eyes of the Lakota people who navigated the area for approximately 1,500 years. You'll learn all about how they used the sun and stars for guidance with the help of the Fisk Planetarium's fully digital projection system during this celestial so showcase in Boulder. Thank you for joining us for the Boulder Weekly. My name is Eric Levine. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aftersight.org or by calling 303-786-7777.